This is the 22nd, the proper 22nd, the 17th week after Pentecost. Um, there are 50-something days until Advent. It's coming soon to help you, um, so let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who art always more ready to hear than we to pray and art wont to give more than either we desire or deserve, pour down upon us the abundance of thy mercy, forgiving us those things whereof our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things which we are not worthy to ask, but through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to put Father Luke on the spot because I can, because I'm his boss. Um, and we haven't talked about this. Father, why you grew up, was it technically Southern Baptist? Yeah, it was Southern, Southern Baptist. Baptist. So why, you made a decision. First of all, how many of you are here are cradle Episcopalian? Like you were born. Okay, so probably was that, wow, is that half? Ninety, maybe. Maybe half, which is actually more than I thought. Um, I... 78% of all statistics are made up, and I think that 94% of all Episcopal <laughs> clergy are converts. Sounds about right. 94%? Well, I just remember the first part. 78% of all oh, stats oh, are made up. <laughs> but I think that's probably... <laughs> it seems high. ...pretty close. I think, I think it's safe to say that well over, well over 50% mm -hmm. probably are. So, um, in a nutshell... Why did you choose this tradition? What were you looking for? And, and what did this tradition have or promise or keep that was so important to you that I imagine that making that transition had to involve some, not alienation, but some, mm -hmm. some difficult conversations with friends, with family. Mm -hmm. um, so what was it that made it worth doing all that? Um, let's keep it brief. Uh, in a nutshell, sacraments and alignment with tradition. So I, I was not, at first, I was not looking to leave my, my Southern Baptist church. Um, there were aspects of it I didn't love, like with every church. There's things that happen that aren't your favorite. But uh, as I started reading more, praying more, and, and thought about as I left high school, what church do I want to go to, um, I came across descriptions of a lot of the early church practices and how they worshipped and especially how reverently they approached the Eucharist and, and baptism. And I kind of realized there's a lot of distance between me and these early descriptions. And I'm not talking 100 years ago, I'm talking thousands of years ago. And so starting to think through, do I feel confident enough that I've got it right now thousands of years later? and somehow they had it wrong way back then, and um, the saints that were formed, you know, the famous people we all know, Augustine, and all these people were formed in this kind of same structure that then I realized was not present in my current church life. So starting to think through that of what am I, what, where are my foundations, where are my roots, and then um, as I kind of dug into that more, approaching the sacraments and realizing the importance and depth of all of those. I'm coming from a church that does it four times a year, and I would sit in the back row and hold the bread and try not to break it, and I would always fail because it was just kind of like a little game for me. There was, there was, there was substance there, but it was, it was just a symbol. It was just a reminder, like you would give somebody a piece of paper. Um, and so those two transitions kind of 
started making me question um, more fundamental things, led me to kind of go to all sorts of different churches, found my way to the Episcopal Church, and I found kind of all those things come together. Um, some ancient liturgy, kind of a honesty and humility about what has come before us and a recognition that this has worked for so many people. Let's, let's be careful changing it. Um, let's not think that somehow we've got something better than thousands of people who have come before us and all the saints that have been formed by these prayers. Let's try to make it work for us. Um, and that humility, I think, was, was big for me. This hopefully will explain a little bit why we are the way we are and our approach to ministry is the way it is and why I think we, we work well together. Mine is exactly the same. And we haven't really had this conversation. I mean, this was a truly a put him on the spot on this. Um, and let me also say that when we have these conversations about previous traditions or other traditions, let me say emphatically that our position, I think I can almost speak for you because I know you agree with this, is that we're talking about our longing to know where the Holy Spirit is mm -hmm. and not to say where the Holy Spirit is not. Mm -hmm. You follow? So, um, like what he said, it, 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 it was a symbol, but I mean, you're, you're not saying that the whole, your experience was wasted because it right. taught That's you right. about Jesus and everything. That's and right. so we're not saying where the Holy Spirit is not, but I think part of that journey is, um, well, for me, one of, and what we're talking about tonight, one of authority. Mm -hmm. Can I trust it? Right? Um, and for me, it was exactly the same. And I remember, I mean, I grew up in, as you, most of you probably know, in the United Methodist Church, and my intuition has always been more toward things that were old and ancient and all that. I mean, there, there, there was undoubtedly that inner disposition toward it. But I remember, I remember serving in a larger church on staff, in staff meetings, in conversations with my boss about how do we manipulate and make things a certain way to appeal. And I remember thinking, I mean, we're just, I mean, we are in every way making this up as we mm -hmm. go along. And I'm not comfortable with it. Um, and um, I remember the things that were being done just to appeal to people. And um, I began to question, if we're making this up, what else are we making up? And that puts you down the history, okay, I want to find something. Because I know, I know that this, this message, this person has changed the course of human history and has changed billions of lives. So that's not in question, but how do I connect with that movement? And I, I not they say the movement, how do I connect with that, that body that, that, that did that? Uh, and it was questions about, like, and for me, for me again, this is not, um, you've never heard me dog my previous tradition because I'm not in it anymore. It's not my business. I'm very grateful for what I learned. And, and, and there's some things about my early years of, I mean, I've told you the story about the first mass I ever said in an English cathedral. I was so proud and happy. And then I was using a different book and I couldn't find the right page to do the Lord's Prayer. And so I had to wing it, like, how do you begin the Lord's Prayer? And I dug to the deepest place I had in my being and it was how the Methodists do it. And I just laughed at myself. Here I am, Captain Anglo-Catholic, doing the Methodist version in an English cathedral in my first shot, right? But that's, that's the power of how you're formed 
going deep down, but I remember as a student local pastor in college giving the authority to do communion in this building, but not that building, and that made no sense to me. What does this address have that that address doesn't have? And it was, uh, it was just, it was incoherent to me. And I began to look. Where is, what, what is the question of authority and tradition and confidence that if I say this is my body, I can trust it and not, you know, a wish, whatever. And I'm always suspicious when people will say, will presume to say what God thinks and, and cares about. It's a very dangerous thing. If someone were to say, well, God doesn't care about that. Well, how do you know? You know, or God thinks this is okay. Okay, fine. How do you know? So that led me the same way mm -hmm. to this tradition. Not that it's perfect, but I think, um, I think, I think on the whole, it was the one that was authentic and real, had the apostolic tradition, which we'll talk about tonight, had the unbroken, um, not saying it's never been um, incorrupt at all, but the unbroken line of teaching and the assurance of, of, uh, of grace. Not to say that the Methodist Church has nothing, I'm not saying that at all. That's not what my point was, but, but here it was. So tonight we're going to looking um, at um, the lesson from is it the past Sunday, Second Timothy. I didn't preach, so I didn't I didn't look at the lessons as much <laughs> from Second Timothy. And I think that as a member of this parish, to read the letters of Paul to Timothy, there are only two, is really important for us. And I actually think to read those letters in 2022 is very important mm -hmm. because what Paul was writing to Timothy is eerily contemporary, like, like strange. The things that he says to him, I read for my own instruction and comfort, try to insert myself into Timothy's position as a youngish leader of a congregation in changing times and to hear what Paul says and he challenges me, he fusses at me, he comforts me, and he confirms sometimes the things. Would you, would you, yeah. You've had similar, similar experience maybe. In yeah, and it, as, I, as we walk through tonight, I'm sure you will have the, the same experience. So what's the text for tonight? In 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 14, it's basically the opening to the second letter of Paul. Bibles are behind Chuck Ware. If, um, if you need one, they're in that bureau. So we'll take it a few verses at a time. Second Timothy chapter one. Just after First Timothy. <laughs> Let's start with verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Right off the bat, I just want to make a note. You'll, you'll hear that greeting that Christians use a lot, and that is a seemingly insignificant, but a, a subtle way that we just kind of adopt the same greetings that Paul used for Timothy. Um, that's kind of a way to say, Paul said it pretty good there. Why change it? Um, where do you hear that here? When you greet us. No. In the announcements. That's right. So, and that's on purpose to tie that back to Paul's greeting to Timothy. It's not that we're Paul, but... Um, our first greeting that's not liturgical should not be, good morning, how you doing, how's your mom and them, but a theological mm -hmm. greeting, mm -hmm. grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
And you'll note right off the bat how um, prevalent Christ Jesus will be, the promise in Christ Jesus. Let's continue. Verse 3. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. Pause right there. There's a couple of things I want to point out there. One is, uh, right off the bat, we see this kind of strangely applicable you know, f- idea here, right off the bat, that Paul is encouraging Timothy because they, they've been physically distanced for, for quite some time. They've not been able to embrace. They've not been able to gather together. And Timothy clearly is struggling with all sorts of things. Is Paul in prison at this moment? Yes. Yeah. Um, and Timothy, you know, that, that physical distance takes a toll on people. How applicable is that for coming out of COVID? It has been years since we've been able to physically gather. Our faith has been shot. Um, the, the legs have been kicked out from a lot of us, and we feel like we don't have much to walk on. And right off the bat, Paul is encouraging him. And he's encouraging him with a couple specific things that we'll point out. One is, it's Christ Jesus. Your, your confidence in your entire faith lies in Christ Jesus. And then he also practically just says, you're doing a good job. This is what your mother had. This is what your grandmother had. Remember the people that came before you. I'm not even talking about the saints and, you know, Paul himself, but practical, relational people, your mother, your grandmother. Remember their words of comfort. Um, I think, you know, we rightfully focus on the saints, um, and then we look at people like St. Augustine and realize that it was his mother that led him to Christianity. I mean, she was the one constantly praying for him, and Paul is kind of calling Timothy back to his roots. And then in verse 6, we get a a theological point being made, where Paul says, For this reason I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. And that should stand out to you. It may not, um, and we'll get into this with our our reason and tradition segments, but um, this practice of the laying on of hands that was kind of this outward sign of the inward transformation that Paul is reminding Timothy, when I laid my hands upon you, that was a sign of God's promise, that, that you have been given this, this power, this authority, and, and this grace that will carry you through your hardships. Don't, don't forget that. Basically, Paul is saying that, that sign did something, and, and remember it. Um, that was not meaningless. That was not just a nice showy thing to do. I mean, this is the reason he's saying rekindle your fate. This is what will sustain you in these times of hardship. What was happening when Paul laid his hands on him? What was the event? It wasn't a Tuesday night dinner, and let me just uh, go a bit further. No, go a bit further. Ordination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ordination. We do it in confirmation as well. But yes. Because yeah, Paul is the, for, for I mean, Paul in Timothy's case, he's, he's talking Timothy's about Timothy's the young bishop of Ephesus. Verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, 
not according to our own works, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again, we see Paul hitting the same things over and over. Right after he, after he reminds Timothy of his ordination of the laying on of hands, of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, he then says, so don't worry if you're suffering. Actually join me in suffering. And implicit in that is saying, unite yourself to Jesus Christ who suffered for you. Your sufferings are, are actual substantial ways that your life is united to that of Jesus Christ. Um, there is, there is um, consistency there. There's unity there. And then he says, who saved us and called us with a holy calling. Again, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, young bishop, struggling, his mentor is in prison, who he has not seen in a while. And what does Paul encourage him with? Your mother and your grandmother's faith, his ordination, and the power of Christ Jesus. All of those things have nothing to do with Timothy. They are all outside of him. They are a faith that is larger than Timothy. He's not saying, hey, buddy, you, you got it. You're doing a great job. No, he's reminding him of the actual things that matter, that it wasn't about you. you don't worry. You haven't done anything to deserve this, and that's a good thing because otherwise you should be worried that you're struggling. No, it's, it's the power of Christ Jesus before the ages began, and that is where your confidence should lie. And then we'll, we'll finish out with 10 through 14, but do you have anything to add there? Several things. I mean, so what do you notice about in verse 5, where I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you? Anything leap off the page at you? It does to me. Family, Marsha? What you said earlier, your roots, or how you were born. Okay. Godparents and baptism and raising people in the faith. Yeah. Like scaffolding for me, um, just building upon the generational aspect of. Who's missing? Father. Father, where's dad? All women. We know that we know that um, his father was Greek. Um, but, I mean. I mean, Society of Mary meeting tonight, I said, ladies, <laughs> we need some men, you know, to come. You know, we had, we had nine at um, Mass this morning at 8.30. Two were men. They were at the altar, yeah. <laughs> you know, you look on any given Sunday, uh, it's mostly women. Um... Right, so a couple points. One, there's nothing new under the sun, right? It's always been this way. Um, I have thought a lot about men in church, and I used to think, and I've said some, um, I've said in the past, maybe unfairly, maybe not, that on like Mother's Day the church is full because what moms mm -hmm. want. Father's Day the church is empty because they're playing golf. Mm -hmm. They're doing what they want. And I, I used to say that men are inherently selfish, and I think there's, I think as a man, I think I mean, there's a lot to that. But I think that there's also a lot of selflessness in men. Men rally to a cause. Men will work for their families and do that. But I think men have a real aversion to vulnerability and any kind of connection to weakness. 
And, you know, if you were to take, this may not be the best analogy, but if you were to take, if, there's a, if you have an ailment and there's a medicine and you take that medicine and it makes your condition worse, are you going to say, is that a success or a failure? You're going to say, that's a failure. Christianity is almost the opposite message. Mm-hmm. You embrace this way of life and things are going to get hard. Mm-hmm. And when you read the, the New Testament, I mean, it's hard from beginning to end. And I don't mean that in any kind of hyperbolic way. I mean, at the beginning, you've got Jesus, you know, escaping to Egypt from the beginning. And at the end, what is it? It's all of the, you know, all the persecution and revelation and everything in between. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there is peace that passes understanding, but there is persecution and hardship galore and suffering. And Paul is consistent. So like today, at the, the noon mass, I remember Paul was talking about, don't lose heart at my sufferings. You know, that's what he's talking about. And so I think that is something that, that men um, have not felt able to embrace, that real power that comes from vulnerability and suffering and to let the power of Jesus Christ be our power and not one of our own manufacturing. And so I think that's part of the issue um, with men and church. So that's one comment, nothing new under the sun. Eunice and Lois were the ones that formed Timothy. Um, also, who was going to the tomb first thing in the morning? Mary, 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 and Mary, and the other Mary, right? You know, they were all going to the tomb mm-hmm. to anoint him. They were, who was the first witness of the resurrection? Mary Magdalene, so on and so forth. The other thing, this is going to lead into what we're going to talk about later. The word, um, the Latin word for tradition, traditio, literally means handed over. Mm-hmm. And so tradition as we'll get into, is not a you know, preservation of error or the antiquity of error, as sometimes as it's called, just doing it because it's old, but something that's handed over, handed down. And so this is the faith that they had, generation, the scaffolding, you say, generation to generation, which is so very important because it's taught and passed down, and it's not a calculus textbook that you just read and now you've got it, right? Let's finish the final four verses, starting with verse 10. I'll back up to the beginning of the sentence, actually. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. And then after this, Paul kind of gets into some practical advice, um, some geographic references. But these four verses kind of do an excellent job of summing everything up and also contain a a couple really interesting points. So the first one I'm going to make is verse 13, hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me. So again, think of that tradition, that handing over. Um, The teachings that Paul has handed over to Timothy, he's saying, hold fast to those. They are a 
treasure, he actually calls in verse 14, guard the good treasure. But the standard of sound teaching, the, the words used there, sound is uh, healthy, um, strong, like you would think of a body being, being healthy. Um, so that kind of helps us understand sound. I mean, it is, it is secure, it is resolute. And then teaching there, it's just the word logos, which is just word. Um, and I think an excellent way to help us understand that a little better is that it is the same word for word used in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word of God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Hold fast to the sound teaching, I mean, the, the strong logos, the strong Jesus Christ that, you have, that, I've been handed, that has been handed over from me to you. Again, Paul is placing all of the confidence in Jesus Christ and in the work that he accomplished. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. Again, time and time again, we're seeing the same thing over and over. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about the treasure that you have been entrusted to. You have a responsibility and be firm in that, but it's not about you. It is a treasure that has been entrusted to you. Um, and as we continue to talk about ordination and apostolic teaching, I think that's the one of the biggest points you can, and for me, that was one of the biggest points for me to connect, that there's something special about bishops, priests, or deacons. They've just been entrusted to hold to this treasure and ensure that it keeps being passed through, that it keeps being handed over to the next generation. Um, it's, not been, that, it's not that you don't have the same truth. That's right. It's just we've been set apart to dedicate our lives for the transmission of that truth. Mm -hmm. That's what we are here for. And I was going to say that... And there are various specific ways that happens. Priests are tied to the altar. Yep. Bishops are overseers of the church. Deacons are tied to the people and the, and the work of the people. Yep. Um, so there are specific ways that happens, but that's all part of entrusting the treasure given to you. We don't have secrets that you don't have. We just have dedicated our lives to learning mm -hmm. the gospel and then how to preserve it and protect it because, as Paul tells Timothy, because we are wanting to create God in our own image, we will take a truth and then, and then reform it into our own image. All of us, all of us mm -hmm. without exception, um, unless we're careful. And, and so you're using the new Revised Standard I Version. Am, yeah. I'm using the Revised Standard Version, an older one. And mine actually says the, pa the pattern of sound words. Mm -hmm. And then verse 14, guard the truth that has been trusted instead of just treasure. But keep in mind, he says that you have heard from me. So if you're talking to friends, relatives who are saying, you know, this tradition is a bit much for me. I just follow the Bible. Well, go back to what the Bible says. There is a teaching that is not written down, and I'm going to show you some other places where that's given. There is the, the church, the transmission of the faith predates the Bible because that transmission of faith is what created the Bible. This Paul is not writing to Timothy the full exhaustive deposit of the faith. He's talking about how to keep the faith that's already been transmitted. That's absolutely important. So we're not anti-Bible at all. We're actually very much Bible because we're holding to the apostolic teaching that produced this and then continues to preserve it. And this is uh, a limits test for the church. I mean, this is what we guard ourselves, uh, kind of judge ourselves against. I mean, notice what Paul says, guard the good treasure entrusted to you. He's, I mean, that's intentional language. He's not saying, come up with something appealing to people. No, he's saying, guard the thing that you have already been given. That's the treasure. Don't, don't, don't worry about changing it. That, that is a treasure in and of itself. Jesus Christ is that treasure. Guard it. Make sure it 
last throughout the generations. If, if I may, this will, this will move into the next one. Go, if you got your Bibles, or scroll down to 2 Peter. 2 Peter's after 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 2 Peter 2. I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1. I'm going to read this to you. For we did not, this is Peter writing. He's right, This is one of the, what's called the um, Catholic epistles, meaning it's not addressed to a specific person or church, but to the church universal. That's why it's called a Catholic epistle. Um, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now we're having the apostolic authority. Why, why do, where do I get my authority? I was an eyewitness. Okay, that's Peter. Where does Paul come from? Was he an eyewitness to the resurrection? No, where's his authority come from? He was an eyewitness to the risen Lord, though. Right? I mean, so you, he has that going for him, you know? All right? For when we, and also going back to, uh, to the apostolic authority, remember when they had to replace Judas? There was one qualification of the people to replace Judas. What was it? Do you remember the qualification? From the beginning, from the baptism to the, to the crucifixion resurrection, had to have been with us and eyewitnesses. Had to, that's the apostolic authority. Um, for, this is verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is Peter talking about the transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter again is saying, telling you you can trust my words, buddy, because I was there. And we have the prophetic word made more sure. You will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this. This is verse 20. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Verse 21. Because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So again, now going back to this sort of yearning for, can I trust what you're saying? So if someone says, you keep your tradition and all of your pomp and circumstance and all that, it's just me and the Bible, that's not biblical. By the Bible itself, right? And so that's why when we come back to this, we're not trying to to create a human structure that's going to justify what we already want to believe. We're actually trying to prevent that by taking this text and make it say whatever we want it to say. The other place um, for that would be um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is to the left, or scroll up. 1 Thessalonians is likely the first letter written in the, the first book written of the New Testament. So they're old. And 2 Thessalonians is not far behind. Chapter 2, um, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditio, the traditions, which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. You see, the text itself recognizes there is a handed down transmission of the faith 
that may not be in all of the papyri that are going around, but given from one generation of apostles to their successors, to their successors, to the successors, which is what we call apostolic succession. That doesn't mean in 2022 that there was a body of faith of eyewitnesses that are gathering together and we don't know the whole story, but there is that powerful symbol of the organic transmission of one generation to another to give the guarantee that we're not going rogue and we're not creating it the way we do. Now, are there bishops in apostolic tradition who go rogue? Absolutely. In the Anglican tradition, in the Roman tradition, and in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, absolutely. But there was this institutional um, structure that provides a safeguard against clergy going rogue and subjecting you to their own whims. Remember what we say in baptism. We're having a baptism at nine um, this coming Sunday. The baptismal covenant, all the time in the Episcopal Church, you hear about the last two clauses of the baptismal covenant about how you treat one another. How does it begin? Will you continue in the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in the prayers, the apostolic faith? I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. See, that's what we're getting at when we talk about this. And I think one of the gut reactions we always have when we talk about the apostolic succession, it's, it's, it's wonderful. What's the first thing you think of in a failure of that recently? I know the first thing I always think of is the clergy sex yeah. abuse crisis. I mean, that is, that's the one. And, and the reason we recognize that as so egregious, as so harmful, is because of what we see here. That the apostolic tradition, the handing over, guarding the treasure entrusted to you, we see that completely laid bare and being failed and tossed to the side for the own personal whims and desires of the clergy. Um, that's the first thing I always think of. And I think so often that sometimes can destabilize our, our faith in the church. Um, and I think it does if the church is a human-made institution. If this is something that we have created to think, what's the best way to follow Jesus? I guess it would be something like the church. And then the clergy sex abuse crisis happens and we, the confidence is gone. But if the church is just simply the structures that Jesus Christ gave the apostles and the practical ways of passing those on to one another, then these failures do not destabilize the whole thing. Does it make them any less horrific? No, and the church will be judged for that. I mean, all of those priests and bishops will absolutely be judged for that because they have failed to guard that treasure entrusted to them. But it does not render the entire church useless because that is not a man-made institution that, you know, a CEO commits fraud and we can just move on to a new one and they can start a new business. No, this is, this is the deposit given by Christ Jesus to the apostles. Well, let's think of a scriptural example of this. I mean, who, who is commonly viewed as the, the chief of the apostles? Who's the number one? Peter. Yeah. Okay. How did he turn out? I mean, he began, he began that sort of, you know, you are Christ, the Son of God. Mm -hmm. You are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. Okay, it was downhill from there. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Denied him. And then restored. Now, again, we're not, there's no equivocation on us about about you know, denouncing with every possible fiber of our being how atrocious and sinful clergy sex abuse mm -hmm. has been. We don't, we, we don't, we don't, I mean, there's, there's, just, there's, no, there's no gray for us on that. No. Um, nor that you would think that we would think that. 
Um, and I'm not, I'm not even equating Peter with that, but you can see failed human beings That's right. from the beginning and the number one. So it's not as if it was, it was pretending. Again, it's that vulnerability and weakness. Is that you know, it's given to us, but we will fail. Yeah. But the fact that it continues to it continues to exist and change lives. What in other what it. other human institution can do that and has done that? Mm-hmm. And that's that's exactly what Paul's telling Timothy. It's not about you. Um, those priests have ruined countless lives. It's not about them. The deposit of the faith does not rest or fall with with their choices. And that's good news. And, and the same thing with with you as non-clergy mm-hmm. is you know you live that faith that's been given to you doesn't mean you're going to be flawless at all but but you but the faith is still alive in you and, and every time we fall then we're restored to grace and we come closer and closer to to the Lord which is what Paul continues to get at every time I fail and struggle I am brought closer to the Lord what do you want to tackle next ordination clericalism Got a couple of well, let's just we ask go. questions or comments. That's a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of scripture, a lot of things we've thrown at you. We must be pretty good. It's fine. <laughs> it's good. Um, How does the, when you were talking about rogue bishops, etc., in your mind, how does that self-correct work? <clears throat> Well, I think that um, the question was, when you have rogue bishops, how does the self-correct work? Well, I think, I think it oftentimes comes through <laughs> divine chastisement, mm-hmm. um, where there is a reckoning where people who may have been blind are no longer blind. And I think clergy sex abuse may be a good example of that, of people who, I mean, I think, I mean, the... It's a, it's a minority of clergy. It's not an insignificant number, but still the minority. And most, I think most people are, you know, good, holy, faithful, and, and all that. But no one is now um, blind to the possibility to it. And I can just, you know, here's, a, here's a practical example. Like, this is my custom to wear this every day. And I do it for convenience. Um, I, you know, sweatpants and a shirt, and I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> And my clothing budget is less than yours, and you know all that. Um, it's comfortable. I'm far more comfortable than you are in shorts in the summertime and sweatpants in the wintertime. But it's a witness. Um, you know, there's no doubt what I do. But if I'm having dinner with my family, and now it's not so much, but when my boys were younger, and they had to go to the bathroom, I couldn't take them to the bathroom wearing this. I mean, I did a couple of times, and I felt people, right? Who could blame them? Yeah. I wasn't upset. My friends in the UK, um, you know, who, who are in urban ministry, when they're, people will call them, um, you know, using the British tongue, um, pedophiles, you know, all the time. You know, it's just, that's just what they're, you know, yeah. So I think, so we're all aware of it is the point. And so what happens now, you're aware of it, and now you pay attention and sort of you demand more. Now there's safeguarding. Sometimes you overcorrect. But, you, but yeah, you, 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 the, the people demand better. 
The clergy demand uh, things that be better and demand more. Um, and once those scales fall from the eyes, uh, I think there's that groundswell. And I think usually that's what happens. But there's a lot of chastisement that comes with that. And not to, not to overstate it too much, but think back to the Old Testament. Bad kings abounded. Um, horrific decisions people suffered. And, and how was that corrected? It was God looking at the ruler and saying, kind of, this is what you want? Fine. And then realizing this is, this is no way to live. And they come running back to God, you know, begging for forgiveness. Um, and chastisement is, I think, more times than not, letting you have what you want. That's right. Yeah. And it's, it's not the thunderbolt from the sky. It's, it's what, you, what, you, what you ordered. So here it is. I don't, yeah, I don't expect any plagues anytime soon or something like that. But giving us what we want sometimes kind of makes us aware. And underlying that is a trust that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. If you don't actually believe that the church will withstand this, then that type of self-correction doesn't actually make sense because what if we've gone too far? You know, maybe there's no turning back now. But if the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, if we actually hold Scripture seriously about that, it means we can withstand these, um, these failures on behalf of clergy and, and egregious actions and whatnot. So why is it, so what, the last thing we want to talk about is clericalism. And so, you know, Father Luke and I are pretty traditional people. I mean, look at us. I mean, we, we, I mean it's, it's, not, it's pretty obvious. Um, and, I mean, our, the way that, I don't want to say our preference. It is my preference because it's my conviction. Does that make sense? So the way that the way that we lead prayers and we do that, it, it is my preference because I'm convicted by it, and I think it's um, I think it's authentic, and I think it is trustworthy. But oftentimes, how we look and how we act, and I'm not saying this is coming from you because it, it's not. At least I haven't heard it. But it seems as if we are instituting more of a father's knows best and just listen to us, and we're going to go that kind of route. I actually would make the argument. The opposite is true, in that what we do from beginning to end, if you were to ask, there is a, there is a traditional historical justification, answer, or guidance to everything that we do, and we're very, very cognizant not to go rogue and just throw things out there because it works. And so, yes, we, we may keep to some archaic things, but part of it is so that we don't have to worry about is this sound or not to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we would make the argument that um, what we're trying to strive for, now listen, we're human beings. And there, I mean, that, 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 that temptation of, of power differential and, and, you know, I mean, the word rector, you know what the word, word rector means in Latin? Any Latin scholars here? The boss. So does it mean <laughs> It means ruler. But come on. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, I can push that canonical authority only so far, and then, Andy, there'll be a correction. Yeah. Right? And, right. And to come That's how that works. A, to come at it from a different approach, a failure to recognize that is, is also a form of trying to hide you know, who really has the power here. I mean... You own up to that so that you're aware of the temptation, so that you're aware when things start to fall out of line. Um, you know, what, what do they always say? The parents who pretend like 
they don't actually have any authority over their children. Those are the ones you should worry about because yep. um, you don't know when it's coming. But um, being aware of that power and, and responsibility so that there are people around you who are kind of keeping you in check is, is good. Um, and, and another point to make just with regards to, to the liturgy, I mean, that's kind of the one that's most visible that people always say, well, I don't know, they're, they're trying to do it that way because that's what they like. Um, and again, going back to like adherence to rubrics, there's a humility there. Um, if you've ever, any of you have ever been teachers before and you have been given curriculum, A, it's nicer than creating your own curriculum, but there's also a, a, an element of trust there that this curriculum will work. It's been done in countless schools. It's, it's formed, you know, hopefully good public citizens and, and so on and so forth. And if it hasn't, then we kind of know that. But if these rubrics and these traditions that have been going on for thousands of years have formed people like St. Augustine and St. Basil and Mary Magdalene and all those people who were formed in this structure of faith, then it would be pretty bold of me to say, eh, I'm going to make some changes because it's not what I like. Um, there, there is an element of humility to say, it's good enough for them. Maybe I don't know better. Yeah, and I would say a couple of things. I mean, yes, it is my preference because, again, it's my conviction. But, I mean, I've... 15 years, I've ticked a lot of people off. Why would I prefer something that makes people so angry? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It just, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to that. But, but here's one thing else I think is important to say is that, um, also not to say that Augustine worshiped the same way we worship exactly. There's, obviously there's development and growth, but, but the core principles and what you're adhering to in terms of authority and what your goal is, is important. But you know, I'm 43, you're 20, Seven. 27 you know you may not it. be in that age range and you may say what can you what can you possibly speak to me mm -hmm. I remember getting that a lot when I was 28 when I came here and I, I understand it the older I get the more I understand that <laughs> but I think what we want to say is we're not giving you our experience yeah we're giving you what the church has taught and we also are handing it over, and it's not coming from us. And so if you were to rely on what I've experienced in 43 years, I probably wouldn't. Um, and that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to trust in something that's greater. And that, to me, that's comforting. And so, I mean, you know, we try to do nothing original. I mean, I, I mean mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean, in terms of making something new about the faith. And so I know, I know that you do this in your preaching, I know you do it in mine. Whenever I'm doing something that I think is actually, in, I get nervous when I think I have something insightful to say. And so when I think I have an insightful point, what do you do when you have an insightful point? Go and see if someone else said I, I actually go check like the church fathers, you know, yep. like what, yep. what, what's their commentary on this text? And then if it's completely against what my insightful thought is, I'm probably not going to say it. Mm -hmm. Let that marinate a little bit longer. Maybe it is insightful, and maybe it's consonant with what with what they said. But I'm much more happy happier to have an insightful thought that's not original. Mm -hmm. It's just new to me, and realize it's in a long tradition. You see, and so I know that we we take that very 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 seriously. I mean, I do. Because I, yeah. I mean, listen. At the end of the day, we're asking you to trust what we say, and I do not want to be at the great judgment of being music man and leading you down mm -hmm. some path because for whatever reason. And, uh, and we, we talk about this privately. You know, we, we take what Ezekiel says about the shepherds will be held account mm -hmm. for all their sheep. And, and I know the Lord's going to ask me about some specific people. And I don't have a whole lot of good answers. 
for specific ones. You know, so I mean, the idea is clericalism is a real problem and we're on it guard is. for it. And I think in this new post-Christian age, this is why we're bringing this topic up, people will understandably have lots of good questions. And so um, I think what we want to communicate is we've not only thought about this, but we've changed our lives because mm -hmm. of this. Because we, th we think it's, it's really important. Thank you. What do you mean by post-Christian age? <laughs> I think COVID has revealed that, um, I mean, I'll give you two things. I mean, so um, was it Pew? Pew. Pew Research is saying yeah. that Christians are going to be the minority by 2050. That's if, people who actually say they're Christian, not yeah, practicing. Yeah, if, if it's not already. I think, I think, I think we are a minority Christian practicing already. Mm -hmm. The idea, here's an example. A vestry member has, a, has two children playing um, football, and they moved to a different county. It's a more rural county, much more church-going county. And they were saying for the first time in their lives, there are two kids on the team that actually go to church. That's post-Christian. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that, and COVID has revealed that. Gary. Yeah, I, it's a little bit off topic here, but I guess I have less concern about YouTube than I have about the church as a whole. Right? So do we. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just think about the church's response to COVID, which yeah. was, Awful. was in many ways to say, like, church isn't that important for you all. Um, or the way that the church right. sort of... Uh, chooses what's important, which seems to be less focused on the holiness or the worship of his members than it does on a whole range of other things that, mm -hmm. whether you agree with them or not, you could get in a, like a local social service organization. So I guess, and I come from a denomination, well, it's hardly a denomination, I grew up Mormon, right? So all lay clergy, um, just like a, a really different um, organization. So I guess, I guess all I have to say is that um, I think I, we cared deeply about our witness and deeply about the church. And I don't know what to do with the fact that I trust you all implicitly. I love to go to church here. And I feel lost as an Episcopalian, even though I chose that, right? Even though we abandoned, like, the generations of our families to become Episcopalians, um, I worry a ton about the church itself. So, so do we. Um, um, it's a great, it's a great point, Gary. Um, and I think that, um, gosh, there's a lot to say to that. Um, it, my my initial thought was, people always ask me with with you know where, because I'm such an oddball um, in so many ways. Why I remain Episcopalian is one question people ask me a lot. And my answer is, um, I have two immediate answers. Number one is, I've learned this, and the older I get, the more, and maybe all, the, you can agree, the more I, I understand this to be the case. I, I think it's the title of a book, so it's not a, not a clever saying being original, but you know, the grass is greener on the other side, but the grass is always greenest over the septic tank. Now, growing up with a septic tank, as I did, that makes a lot of sense. And so I learned, and now that we have information everywhere, I've learned that I can go to Rome or Constantinople, the other apostolic you know, lines, and they got this, the same number of problems with different names than we have. Mm -hmm. And so I could do that. I'm going to exchange one set of problems for another, 100%. Um, 
The other thing is, is I'm convinced that I'm actually a priest. Um, and if I were to change, I would to reject all that. And I would have to say that all that I have done in my time here was pretend. And I can't, in good conscience, and in intellectual integrity, say that. So um, John Keeble was one of, the, one of the great giants of the Oxford movement. And you and I have talked about the Oxford movement a bit. He was a professor of poetry at Oxford. He is said to have said this in a letter. And I can't find it, but let's don't let that get in the way, all right? You know, it's a great line. He was writing to someone who said similar, had similar concerns about the Church of England in the, 18th, in the 19th century. And it's always interesting how we think the world's falling in every generation, you know, falling apart. And to some degree it may be, it's just whatever's important to us. He said, and this is my guiding principle, Gary, he said, if the Church of England were to cease to exist, it would be found in my parish. And so what I, we try to do here is if the Episcopal Church in its best were to cease to exist because of, of inept, corrupt bishops and, and the church pension fund has told us, has told us that our pension fund will outlast the baptized membership of the Episcopal Church. We know that. The average age of ordination is 50 in the Episcopal Church by our own stats. It ain't looking good, but we're full of hope. But our hope is if that structure were to cease to exist because we have abandoned it, then we would keep it going here. We would be that remnant, which again, I think is very biblical yeah. as well. Um, but also would say finally is that there are lots, there are, is, we, we tend to focus, and I'm, I'm a pessimist by nature. That's something else I have learned about myself. I need to acknowledge. Um, but there are lots of bright spots that I don't always pay attention to or acknowledge and um, as, as, as bishops who are just absolutely you know, doing stupid things, there's a new generation that actually gives, a new generation is coming up that fills me with an awful lot of hope that I think will be all right. I'll end on a, oops, sorry, got a couple more questions. Well, I, I just, I don't understand what it is, but what, that Lambeth conference, mm -hmm. is that it? It was in England, all of the African and Orthodox churches, I think, refuse to come? Not quite. It's, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. 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 So there's lots of disagreement. There, there is. On all kinds of levels. And the fact, the fact of the matter is there's disagreement and then there is, there, I mean, there's, it, there are lots of old wounds. And oftentimes in lots of disagreements there is the issue and then there's the issue. And, and, and so many times we get distracted by the issue and we never can get to you know, the, the deeper issue. Will any of that trickle down to here? No. no. Okay. Only if we let it. Oh, okay. Only if we let it. Um, and I just came from a clergy conference last week, and that was the topic. And I tell you, the clergy around the tables were like, our churches are, are decimated by COVID, and, and we don't really care what Lambeth said about creation care. I mean, we're, it's all important, but that's not what's going to, you know, you know fix us or help us on the ground here. Um, you know, I think that we're trying, I think what's, 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 because the world is so transparent in this digital age, and you know this with social media, everyone wants to be on the side of the right statement, but no one's really interested in real relationships. You know, and so I think Lambeth on all sides is all about whose side are you on, and are you going to be on the right side of history, mm -hmm. but not about relationships on the ground and doing Jesus that. Jesus was never like that. 
No, and I, but also I think that I think the ultimate goals. I think people are trying to do what's right, but we we have not created the structures to have conversations where we can be who we are and start to trust one another. And there are lots of complicated reasons for that. There are lots of reasons why people don't trust one another. So, um, but to answer your question, what happens in Lambeth is um, is a family gathering that happens every ten years. And if you're going to get together every ten years, and in this case it was every twelve years, twelve years because of COVID, um, you know, not a whole lot of relationships that are there because probably eighty percent of those who were there twelve years ago are not here now, mm-hmm. right? And so, it's complicated. It's complicated. But if I were king, things would be fixed. (laughs) Well, let me say this, and this may be our closing comment. I will say that what we need to do, and again, I need to correct my pessimism. Um, I am on record publicly, privately, in every way in between of my dissatisfaction with how COVID was handled by our superiors. If they hear this on the podcast, they will not be surprised, and I'm not being disobedient because I've said it to them and they know it. Investry knows that. You know, we're on the open. And and, And Bishop Rodman has owned a fair amount of that, to his credit, to do that. If the pandemic were to happen again, I would disobey them in a heartbeat, and I would do what I think the church should have done, and put a mask on, and put a hazmat suit on, and I've been walking the halls of the hospital, uh, anointing people who are dying, and telling them that there is grace in the moment of death, and not cower behind a fear of being sued, which I think is what happened, Mm -hmm. and we just said, depose me, and, 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 and go at it, because I'm not going to do it. And I thank God none of you were in the hospital dying with COVID, and I had to FaceTime you, because A, I wouldn't have done it, but B, I'm glad I wasn't put in that position. I have said to a bishop, it's a horrible place to be to doing what is best for your people and obeying your bishop. But, but here's my, we need to pray for them. Because you know what? I want you to pray for us because we do things that you don't like and you may not know the full reason and you may never be able to know the full reason because there's lots of reasons. And so, again, I've been critical, but I'm not a bishop. And I I know what it's like to have you upset with me. I don't know what it's like to have a diocese upset with you. I don't know. I'll never know what that's like. You know, but, but we do pray for our bishops, mm-hmm. and we need to. So that, that's what I need to I need to be very clear as we end that, that yes, we, we, can, we can vent, we can grieve, and Bishop Robin's been very good and gracious about that with me personally. He owns that. Um, he knows that needs to happen in terms of healing and going forward. Um, but we do need to pray for him and ask for his, for Bishop Robin's strength and grace going forward because it was awful for everybody. That's, that's for sure. And who knows what he had to deal with or who he was hearing from and and all that. But this is our correction, I hope. Let me end with a slightly humorous point, kind of, but also a message of hope, and then, and then I can close us in prayer, and if people have questions, we can, we can hang around. Um, in the middle of, of COVID and you know, frustration with, with bishops and decisions, um, I did what my first thought was to do, which was to say, I wonder if anybody's written on bad bishops. And I found a book from, a, from an Anglican um, up in Canada, and he had a chapter called Bad Bishops. And so I read it and, um, you know, read it a couple times. And anyway, the, the, the message, which is, which is kind of humorous, but I think there's something to it. Um, one of the points that he kept making was the bishops are supposed to make you, as, as a diocese and especially as clergy, more like Jesus. Suffering makes you more like Jesus. 
So if you are suffering under them, they are doing their job, even if they do not intend to. Which is a, a humorous point. And then he, you know, obviously takes it a little deeper. But, but the point remains that Paul, I mean, what did we read today? Paul is saying, I rejoice in my suffering. What does um, Joseph say to his brothers? You know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The message is consistent throughout the scriptures. Um, time and time again, there's this idea that suffering unites us with Jesus Christ. And if a bishop is the, the means by which I am forced into suffering, and, and maybe it's actually false suffering and it takes me some correction to realize that, or maybe it is authentic suffering, and if it actually is, then thank goodness for the bishops for making me more like Jesus Christ. Um, that is not a position I always hold readily, but it is, it is what I strive to, to meet you know, these, these decisions with. And as I think about the future of the church, um, and corrections and, and all of that stuff. Um, suffering makes us more like Jesus. And if we can hold that, I think there's actually hope in there. And in the Book of Common Prayer, this would be truly the final comment, there is a codification of the Latin phrase, ex operere operato, which means it's not the minister, it's, it's not the minister that does it, it's the work that's being done. So Article tw um, 26 in the Articles of Religion on the unworthiness of ministers which hinders not the effect of the sacraments. Although in the visible church the evil be ever mingled with the good, and sometimes the evil have chief authority in the ministration of the word and sacraments, yet for as much as they do not the same in their own name, but in Christ's, and do minister by his commission and authority, we may use their ministry both in hearing the word of God and in receiving the sacraments. Neither is the effect of Christ's ordinance taken away by their wickedness, nor the grace of God's gifts diminish from such as by faith and rightly do receive the sacraments ministered unto, him, unto them, which be effectual because of Christ's institution and promise, although they be ministered by evil men. Nevertheless, it appertaineth to the discipline of the church that inquiry be made of evil ministers and that they be accused by those that have knowledge of their offenses and finally being found guilty by just judgment be deposed. If you have a priest that's an awful human being, the sacraments are still gifts of God. And that's a sign of God's strength and weakness. Mm -hmm. Closing prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift, the treasure that you have given to us through our forefathers and foremothers, through the people who have brought us up in the faith, through the bishops and the saints that have come before us. We thank you for the tradition, the handing down of the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace that is made perfect in weakness, for the sufferings that we experience that draw us closer to you on the cross, and for the life that we live here and now. We pray that you will be with us be with St. Timothy's, be with our diocese and the church as we strive to draw closer and closer to you. We thank you for never abandoning us and we pray your hand over, of protection over us. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.